This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome board folks, Dr. Charles Parker here one more time. And one of the things I really absolutely love about being a host for Core Brain Journal is not the hosting thing, it's the learning thing that I get a chance to experience with you guys out there. You know, we're in 110 countries now, so we know we have a lot of listeners out there. And today we're going to hear some very interesting nuances on personal development from an individual who really has figured out a spiritual transformational process. And as soon as I say that, somebody's like, oh my, I'm going to yawn now. But no, no, this is a transformational process that involves, and I said spiritual because it is transcendental, the way she's thinking. And we talk about transcendental thinking all the time here at Core Brain Journal. And so Rebecca Whitman is going to join us, and she is the author of, I got to get this book out, How to Make a Six-Figure Income Working Just Part-Time. That sounds like an entrepreneurial title. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dr. Parker. So Rebecca is a very deep person, and we were talking a little bit beforehand. And what I want to do is help her kind of introduce herself to me and to our audience here because we share some things in common, to tell you the truth. I mean, uh, I went to medical school in Philly, her father, medical school in Cincinnati. She's from Cincinnati. Did you go to medical school? Where did he actually go to medical school, Rebecca? Well, he actually taught psychiatry at the uh, medical school at the University of Cincinnati, where he was the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry. But oh, he attended, yeah, he attended medical school at Indiana University in, in Bloomington, Indiana. Indiana University, yeah. So, and Rebecca is coming to us from beautiful downtown Princeton, New Jersey. <laughs> I'm actually in Los Angeles right now. Oh, you are. Okay. I live. I reside in Los Angeles. Yeah. Oh. I went to Princeton University. You went to Princeton. I don't know how I got all mixed up thinking you were There's a lot. We went through a lot of information before the podcast. Oh, that's great. It's fantastic. Well, so you're out in LA. So, you know, I hope the rain doesn't wash your your mudslides away out there. It's just unbelievable. I know. We need rain out here. Yeah, I know. My son lives out there in in, uh, Topanga. So where, where do you live in LA? I live in Venice near the beach. I know where you are. Yeah. All right, so let's go. We've done a little bonding. Now let's talk about Rebecca. Rebecca, you've had an interesting history, and that history has built a bit of a fire under you where you then thought, hey, I've got some things that I can share with the public. And that's how this, the book came up with the six-figure income. Let's talk about who you are as a person and what are some of the things that came up from a family relationship situation which caused you to feel like you want to write this book? Well, that's a great question. So growing up, my dad was a total overachiever. He graduated high school at age 15, college 18. He graduated medical school at age 20. He had to wait a year before practicing medicine because you had to be 21 to get a license. Oh my gosh. And he was just a total workaholic overachiever. So I saw that example of success, but I didn't really think he was happy all the time, even though he had a very fulfilling long career as a psychiatrist. 
And so I kind of sought out to create my own definition of success. And, and to me, success is defined by how much joy I have. So the reason I actually wrote the book is my dad was 91. He was on his deathbed. And he said, do me a favor and write something. I don't care if it's a blog or a, you know, op-ed or an essay, just write something because I think you have a very interesting viewpoint on life that people will want to hear. Mm-hmm. So uh, because of him, I wrote the book and I dedicated the book to my father. Fantastic. What a great thing for your father to say to you. I mean, isn't that terrific that he yeah. had the confidence in you to say, look, you could do this. This is really important. Mm-hmm. And you have a message in you. Let's yeah. get it out. Exactly. That's exactly what he said on one of our last conversations of his life. So I don't know if I would have been that motivated to write it, but I, I wanted to honor him. So mm. it was a great experience. I'm so glad I wrote the book, though, and it, it's helping a lot of people. So let's talk about the concept of the book in the larger perspective, because it helps us understand your mission and what you want to accomplish. So basically, I divide life into seven areas. And when you get these seven areas in balance, not only will you make six figures, but more importantly, you'll be happy and healthy. And I believe that um, happy is the new rich and health is the new wealth. So the areas are spirituality, physical fitness, emotional, romantic, mental, social, and then finally financial. So you actually start on the flip side, as we were talking about before we actually started this conversation. Yes. So you're not saying, hey, folks, let me give you this rainbow to chase. Right. You know, this dollar rainbow. Let's get into who you are as a person. And when you actually develop yourself as a person, there will be a transformational experience, which will take place and everything else comes relatively naturally if you follow these guidelines. Exactly. People think, well, I'll get in shape when I make money or I'll fall in love when I make money or I'll have a great social life and have time for friends after I make money. And in the book, I'm saying, no, you need to get all those things in order first. And then as a result of having a balanced, fulfilling life, then you'll make money. So that's interesting. So then when you get started, let's take, we're not going to ask you to do the entire book here, but I think an important point would be to really say a bit about, let's take a moment to just think of a metaphor of a person who's a relative innocent and they're kind of lost with who they are. And what is one of the first things that you think a person really needs to come down to, to begin that developmental process and and really be more serious about it? Well, the foundation of all seven areas, and I think to leading a fulfilling, happy life, is to have some kind of spiritual practice. Uh, it doesn't have to be the traditional Judeo-Christian God. It could, be, it could be love, it could be breath, it could be something, but just to have some kind of a morning practice where you kind of get yourself centered and grounded and ready to face the day. So I'm a strong believer in meditation and uh, affirmations. And the book has three affirmations at the end of each chapter. Oh, so- I got you, okay. Let's say, you know, we're starting off with spirituality. So at the end of that chapter, there's three affirmations. And actually my friend, she is a psychologist and she has her, she does a group therapy. And at the beginning, they kind of say, which of the seven areas they want to work on that week. And they start with saying the affirmations just to get them in a positive mindset. 
So for the spirituality chapter, it says, I am a spiritual being having a human experience. I have a connection to the divine that gives me peace and ease. I am able to go with the flow and know that everything works out for me. Heavy. It sounds so simple in a way, but it's so heavy. It's, yeah. These are deep spiritual truths. So then each one of your chapters in which you're starting to provide a structure for individuals has an affirmative affirmation experience that becomes a part of that so yeah. they can actually move along and take themselves off the dime, so to speak. Exactly. So then if you have an innocent, tell me what your thought about this idea here is. Because my feeling is having, I wrote a book called Deep Recovery years ago. I think it was like 92 or something like that. And uh, one of the things that led me to that book is a transformational experience that I had in my life where I really had to think more deeply about what was going on after I had all this psychoanalytic training and child and adult psychiatrists, this and that and the other thing, and had a transformative life experience with the person that I was working with that was uh, unpleasant to say the least, okay? <laughs> and so I had to like turn the light on and figure out who I was. But the whole idea of thinking about uh, spirituality on a different level, but how do you help a person when they come in to you or your colleagues to get past the word spirituality in some constructive way? Because I think so many people are kind of turned off. It's just, you know, it sounds like such a woo-woo term. We know what spirituality is. Yeah, I go to church. I'm an Episcopal. But this whole spirituality thing is like way too woo-woo. So what, what do you think about how, do, how does a person approach that? How would you suggest approaching it? Well, I would say that we are not our thoughts. So one of the great things with meditation is you learn to detach the silent observer from the thoughts and kind of watch them go by as if you're watching cars go by on a highway. So if, if we're not our thoughts, then what are we? We have to be connected to something bigger and greater than just our mind, which is just regurgitating thoughts and beliefs over and over and over again. And I would say that's how I would talk about spirituality or Carl Jung says, you know, the collective unconscious, we're all connected to something bigger than ourselves. So that's interesting. So then in that particular, you know, example right there, I actually had three things come to my mind at the same time. Cause it's so, so interesting. I was going to ask you about meditation before I, and I, I just want to get this off my chest. So I did Zen meditation for a long period of time. I did the martial arts for many years and was into all the reading of the Zen way to the martial arts, all this sort of thing, and, and got into it. What type of meditation do you do? Do you have a particular brand type? And what is the technique that you recommend that a person use to actually have the best meditative experience? I mean, I do different types, but I think the easiest for beginners in meditation is just to download an app. And they have a lot of meditation apps, but one that I particularly love is called Insight Timer. And depending on what you're working on, they have different meditations, whether it's self-confidence, motivation, relaxation, sleep, and you can literally just pick one depending on how much time you have. They have them anywhere from one minute to an hour. And you just sit there and you listen and you naturally kind of turn your own mind off and you just listen to somebody else's either guided imagery or mantras. 
I think that is just such a great, easy way to get into meditation. I've also done transcendental meditation where I was given a secret mantra. So I can't mm -hmm. tell you, Dr. Parker, because I was sworn <laughs> to secrecy. Yeah. Uh, so that's a good one. And then there's also uh, inhale love, exhale fear, you know, inhale all is well, exhale I have everything I need, just kind of saying positive calming thoughts to yourself. And your meditative practice is, is do you do a half an hour? Do you do 15 minutes? What's your, your own personal practice? What do you think works best for you? I try to meditate. Usually the mornings are a little bit hectic. So five minutes in the morning and maybe in the afternoon, I try to take a 10 to 15 minute meditation break. So I don't have an exhaustive meditation practice, mm -hmm. but it's just something where I can just settle into my body for a few minutes and just tap in to something bigger than my own thoughts. I got you. So then the issue is, do you use guided imagery per se, where you put a objective out there and think about managing that objective through guided imagery? Well, depending on what time of day it is, I, I do select from that app, you know, what I want. So I'll pick a morning meditation and, and they're different. Some of them are just setting up your day, you know, this is what I want to do. And this is the type of person I want to be. I don't really have guided imagery. It's more just uh, the time of day and how many minutes I have. And then I just choose, you know, whatever strikes me as interesting at that moment. Well, that's great. That's fantastic. So now do you work with people virtually to do this? Do you have a situation where people can then subscribe to something you're doing? Or is this mainly just focusing on your book as the tool to move forward? I do seminars. I do private coaching. I have a website, RebeccaElizabethWhitman.com. Uh, my email address is the same, RebeccaElizabethWhitman at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. And I, I am available for coaching as well as I do have uh, seminars. And uh, there's a lot of great information on my website. Well, that's good. I'm glad you told me that because I'll put it in the show notes. That Thank people, you. Yeah, that'd, that'd be great. Looked up with you and get it done. Yeah. So then the next question is, this whole, there are several different questions that come up that are more practical. And that is, is it really possible if somebody starts thinking about six figures, which mm -hmm. is a big number, is it possible to make six figure income working only part time? How can a person do that? Well, I know it's possible because I've been doing it for the last 12 years and I do it because I'm in an all commission sales position. So obviously, if you're getting paid for hours and you're working 40 hours a week, nine to five, you're not going to be able to make six figures working part-time because your money is limited by your time. So there's a cap on your income. But yeah. if you can find something on the side, I like to call it your side hustle, something more entrepreneurial, you can make six figures working part-time. Because you can structure the time so that you could actually live in that other reality. Yeah. It's just, it's about time management. And in the book, I talk about your play days and your focus days, and it's about structuring your time. So if you do work 40 hours a week and you say, you know, I'm going to give three hours in the evening, twice a week to creating an, an outside opportunity. And people are always like, well, I don't know what to do. And I always say, well, ask yourself a couple of questions. You know, what do you like to do? What are you good at? And what makes you mad? And those questions kind of get you into a mental uh, framework that, oh, I might be able to focus my time on this. So what makes you mad is a surprise <laughs> for me because I wouldn't necessarily be drawn to that. How did that one fit in, if you don't mind? 
well, maybe you're mad that they do uh, animal testing, or maybe you're mad that about our current political situation. So you can put your energy, that would kind of point to what you're passionate about. So you to, could point your energy in that direction. Yeah, to actually overcome it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not just stewing about it at home and resentment. You're actually taking some positive yeah. action to make a change. So then the issue is that whole spirituality thing. What does that have to do with becoming an entrepreneur? Could that, I mean, this is a big question. This right here is probably the biggest question, but I think it's germane because people are saying, well, you know, your book is about six figures. You're talking about meditation, <laughs> you're talking about spirituality. How does all of that hook up? How does spirituality hook up with actually some financial security down the road? Well, your life is kind of like a, a car or a Ferrari. And if you are running on fumes, you might even get six figures or more, but you won't be fueled. How many wealthy people do we know that commit suicide? You know, wealthy, famous movie stars and, and different people that are in the media that were like, wow, they had everything. They had fame, they had fortune, but then they kill themselves. So, or they're desperately unhappy. I mean, you're a psychiatrist. I'm sure you see very affluent people who are just desperately unhappy. So, and as Freud said, you know, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. So to get over that uh, barrier of being unhappy with or without the money, I think that spirituality is, is an important factor. And that's why I make it the foundation of all the other six areas. So then let's talk about the practice because if time is one of the variables, what do you think is the minimum practice that a person they're saying look i'm gonna i like this woman i like what she's talking about i do need to change my life i'm willing to dive into this a little more quickly and, and more thoroughly but i'm i'm really hesitant because i'm so darn busy how can i actually structure my time in some way that i can begin to actually realize some of these goals and objectives regarding meditation and self-fulfillment well, it's about prioritizing your time and getting rid of people, places, and situations and activities that don't enhance your life. And to be very selective with how you spend your time. You know, we're so selective with the different iPhone, you know, model or the food we eat or the clothes we wear, but we're not selective with who we socialize with and how we spend our time. So it's just being very selective and it's just creating a schedule and then sticking to it. So there's a lot of self-discipline involved when you don't have a lot of time. And to stay away from what I call the energy vampires that are draining your energy so you don't have a lot of energy to devote to your entrepreneurial part-time opportunity. Yeah, I call them the vortex, you know. I've got a bad word for it, which I won't say over the radio, but the, the vortex sucks you up into whatever else is going on. But do you, do you think you could do it? If a, Could a person do this if they just did 15 minutes a day? Yeah, absolutely. And also in the book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, which was the first self-help book, you know, written in the 1920s, it's about other people's efforts, other people's money and other people's ideas to get wealthy. You have to employ those three things. So if you only have 15 minutes, but you have an opportunity where you're delegating time and energy, then absolutely. I like the idea of delegating time and energy. <laughs> yeah. You hire people that have time to do it. I mean, there's so many uh, calling centers that people are using and virtual assistants that are like in the Philippines and India. And these people have time and they're just delegating this type of stuff overseas. Yeah, that was the uh, Tim Ferriss. 
made yeah, some significant exactly. money on that. Yeah, he's Four a hour great guy. Week. Yeah. He's I've been told I'm the the female counterpart to his male, more male version of Well, that's how a to great compliment. That's a great compliment. He's cooking. Oh yeah. You know, so do you have a do you have a podcast? I don't. I don't have a podcast, but on my website there are many links to podcasts and radio shows that I've been on. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. I was just thinking because you do have a message and I was thinking about cuz Tim does have a good podcast. He does. So That's then a good the question, idea. who would be the person that would most benefit from your book? If you were saying, okay, here's, here's a person that just has to get the book right now. This is a big deal. I would say the people that are burnt out, they're frustrated, they've lost their joy of life. They feel like they're in a dead-end relationship or a dead-end job, and they're kind of feeling like resigned and that there's no alternative and that this is just their life. And uh, they just have to work nine to five until they're 65 and get a gold watch and a pension plan. And that's just how it's done. <laughs> I would say this book is for them. So what you just said, I'm going to freely translate what you said, which is a point that has oftentimes come up to me in my own life and, and working with others. Pain brings change. And when you recognize the pain that you're actually in and you see what the encumbrances are, that through one way or another, you've created for yourself by not actually setting the limits that you were just talking about a moment ago. And that these things have like sucked you up so that you're in a morass that you can't extricate yourself from. That pain is a big motivator. That, that's the kind of person that's going to jump on this book right off the bat is what you're saying. Because pain, you're looking for a way out. You need to open that door. You got to figure out how to get out of the barn. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite spiritual teachers, uh, Michael Beckwith, he says that people are either pushed by pain or pulled by a vision if they want to change. So most people, I would say, are, are pushed by pain. Yeah, I think that's true. You have to be quite creative to get, catch the vision. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times the vision comes from pain because you're just looking for a way out. And you're like, this is, I got to go. I'm going to go. So what do you do in terms of with your book? You're doing the podcast with us. Do you do um, out there in LA, do you go into, do you have an opportunity to do uh, presentations with your book? Uh, do you go in bookstores, do signings, that sort of thing? What actually happens for a busy author? Yes. Well, the book just came out in June. So uh, it's been out for about six months. So I've done book signings. I've done uh, seminars. I'm going to be doing a seminar in New York City uh, the weekend of March 22nd at the New Life Expo. Oh, that'd and be fun. Yeah, it'll be fun. So I just, you know, wherever I'm totally open to uh, public speaking on a corporate or individual level. And like you said, I have a message and the message is that you can be actually happy and make money at the same time. And the two are not, you know, a lot of people think, well, if I'm, if I'm making all this money, then I'm working and I'm working eight hours a week and I'm unhappy or you can actually have balance in your life. And I really think that people need that message right now because a lot of people don't uh, experience balance. That is so true. Now, listen, we, this is not to put you on the spot here when I'm going to ask you a question because I know you know the answer. I don't even know you, but I know you know the answer. So I know I'm not really putting you on the spot, but I do think that it's important for us to deal with the negatives from the point of view. A person sure. could say, that's very interesting. It's very uh, helpful. Rebecca, I would like to do that. 
but you know, I'm worried and I don't know what's going to happen down the way. Let's take a moment, if we could here, to look at the most frequent way that the person falls off the path from your perspective and your experience. So if a person gets started, what draws them off more frequently than anything else? That's a great question. I think it would be other people's opinions or what I call the dream stealers. You know, they're telling the people around the water cooler at work, oh my God, I read this book and I have this idea and I know I can make a six-figure income working part-time. And people will say, oh, come on, that's a get-rich-quick thing. That's like, you know, network marketing or no money down real estate. That's not going to work for you. And I think that people, when they see someone else get hopeful or excited about an idea or a concept or a business, their natural inclination is to tear them down. I think that's very, very wise comment to tell you the truth. I think that's something that does happen all the time. And it could be family. It could be you, people yeah. who love because they don't have that vision. And so what happens is they want to be protective in some way. So they're trying to disabuse you of what they think is a lost cause. And they either want to be protective or it's a mirror, which is reflecting to them their own loss of hope and their own negative mindset. So if someone comes around and they're all happy and shiny and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and the other person's depressed, they're going to be more aware of their own depression. And that's why people are like, oh, I liked you better when you were depressed. You know, Because yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, misery loves company. Isn't that true? That is so completely true. Well, let's take those. So that's a little bit on the negative side. I think that's a very accurate point. Let's take another few moments to talk about some of the most transformational experiences, one or two of the transformational experiences that you've seen in your work with people, either since you've written the book, before you're writing the book, in your own experience when you're meditating and you're in consultation with some of these individuals who have helped you along your path. What have been some of the, like, this was really interesting how this happened. Okay. Well, I have a very uh, dear friend and she was in a marriage, a newer marriage, and she was having conflict with her husband because he felt like she was spending too much money and she wasn't putting in her fair share of work and it yeah. started to affect their marriage. So she said, you know what, I'm going to take your advice, Rebecca, and I'm going to start my own financial planning business. And like you said, you know, in the beginning of our conversation, I'm not sure if we are recording, but all good entrepreneurs want to make a difference. And she sincerely wanted to go out and make a difference in people's life and help them plan for their retirement and their future. And she's been doing it now for a couple of years. And no, this isn't a get rich quick thing. She hasn't made six figures yet, but she will be on track to make six figures in the next few years. And it's saved her marriage because her husband's no longer feeling resentful. And now she's more excited about life because she's going out and she's helping people plan their financial future. So that's a really big example. That is a big one. And that's, that would be so encouraging to see it start to happen for yourself. And it is, you know, she's starting to make four grand a month and, and just to take a business from zero to four grand a month and know that she is on track to make six figures is, it's super exciting and motivating to her. And now, regardless of what happens with the marriage, of course, we want the marriage to succeed. She is feeling more self-esteem because she's financially self-sufficient. So true. So true. I always thought that you had to like, even as a salesperson, you know, be that pushy salesperson and kind of like push your weight around and even be somewhat of a bully, you know, trying to make people make a decision and 
you got to do this, you got to do this, and just, just to be pushy. And what I've learned through my studies is you can actually be more still and just let people come to you, whether it's uh, in a sales scenario, socially, romantically, that you can attract and get results through magnetizing more than actually pushing your weight around and being like kind of a bully. Yeah, you know, I think that's a, and I can see in your personality and speaking with you that that would be a very easy objective for you to achieve because that's who you are. You have a certain magnetic quality when you're talking about and, and a quiet calm. Here's what could happen, you know, as opposed to you got to do this, you got to do that. Well, and how did it work with your father being a psychoanalyst? Now, we talked about this. I don't think we've talked about it since we started the recording. And we were doing a little bonding on psychoanalysis. And your father was very significant and influential. But mm-hmm. the other side of it is coming from a medical family where psychology is so much part of the family. What was your thought about that whole experience growing up? Well, it's funny because as I shared in the beginning, you know, my message is that joy is the evidence of success. And I was so excited to tell my dad that. And he said, that's one way to be successful. <laughs> he, couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't accept it as the only measure. He said, that's one measure of success, yeah. joy. So he couldn't accept that. But yeah, I didn't even tell you. My sister is a psychiatrist in New York City, and my brother is a psychologist. He has a society here in LA. So my other oh. sister's got an MSW. My mother's got an MSW. So literally everyone in my family is either a doctor or a lawyer married to one. And I've chose not to do either one of those. So how does it affect my family or how, what was the question? Oh, no, I was only curious about, I was really only thinking about it in a limited way, which was your relationship with your father. Because I've okay. seen so many people in mental health, and, and especially like my wife actually had a psychoanalytic adventure herself. I was mm-hmm. psychoanalytic training, so of course you have to undergo psychoanalysis, and all our friends were psychoanalysts, okay? Right. So we were hanging out with, and we made a vow early on that we weren't going to pull any psychoanalytic mumbo jumbo on each other. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we just like, don't tell me about your mother and don't interpret mine. We're going to live. We're not going to carry because it would be happening. So often we'd go to a play down in downtown Philly and all of our friends were psychoanalysts and they'd be looking at the deeper meanings of the play. We'd be talking about this and that and the other thing. So that's what I was really thinking about, whether how your father actually handled that or whether there was something going on in some similar respect regarding the way you were raised. Well, have you heard that old saying, uh, Dr. Parker, that everybody in the village has shoes except for the cobbler's family? So <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't think I was psychoanalyzed. I think he just let me run wild and kind of fall on my face and fend for myself and learn my own lessons and come to uh-huh. my own conclusions. So I don't think he psychoanalyzed or overparented me. He just kind of let me kind of find mm-hmm. myself through trial and error and through a lot of failure and a lot of triumph. And there I, I forged some kind of sense of self. He set the example by his self-confidence. He did. I actually noticed how confident he was and how charismatic he was. And I liked that he made quick decisions and I took it all in by observation, but he didn't, uh, of course, 
any of his opinions as, as far as other than be a doctor or lawyer on me, that was the only one, but <laughs> everything else, as far as, you know, how to just think and process the world and how to achieve, I came to either through watching him or like I said, through trial and error. And I think that's a great way that people grow up. And I think it can go into your twenties or thirties. It's like self by trial and error. It's like, Oh, well, that type of relationship doesn't work. So maybe I'll try a different style. And, you know, that type of job didn't feel good. So maybe I need a different, you know, it's, you just got to find your way. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. What was your experience like up in Princeton in that regard? Did you, did, were you interested in uh, psychology when you were in your Princeton work? They have a class called Psychology 101 and it's fondly nicknamed Nuts and Sluts. Uh, <laughs> I took that, but I had a degree in English literature and a minor in Italian language and culture. So they didn't really have a psychology major that I was aware of. They probably did, but mm -hmm. I was more interested in the humanities, like English and history and that type of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. That would have been so much fun. So you're, you actually came along as a writer very early. Yeah, you know, I hadn't written since I graduated from Princeton, and it just came back to me because I had to write so many papers when I was at Princeton, and I think I really learned, like, how to write an outline and how to organize my thoughts and expand on them, and that was one of the great skills that I developed at Princeton that I didn't even really know I had until I sat down to write this book, and by the way, this is a short book for your listeners. It's only about 80 pages. So it's, I haven't written Pride and Prejudice or anything crazy like that, but uh, it's a nice, easy, quick read. And a lot of people go back to it and, and they employ it in their daily meditation and their daily spiritual practice, because it's something that you can get, you know, more and more out of the more you read it. So it's, it's a short book, but it's a very rich book. Fantastic. Now tell me this. Is there anything that you feel that you really, in terms of your message, I like the whole insight timer and all that, I really enjoy the concepts you were telling us about how you can actually make the applications. Is there anything else that you think we missed that, that would be on your message, your mission, something? Hey, Parker, there's one thing I wish we could have spent a little more time on because we're running out of time here. And I just wanted to give you a chance to think about that. I think there's two things. Um, one of them is the importance of exercise as far as your well-being and having more energy to devote into making six figures part-time. A lot of people think I don't have time to work out because I'm so busy making money. Mm -hmm. But I believe that if you can find the time, especially in the morning to exercise, it kind of sets the tone for your day. Yes. And it actually gives you more energy. And I feel like health is the biggest resource that we have because you can have wealth. And if you're bedridden and sick, then you can't even enjoy your wealth. You're just in bed. So I really believe, you know, move a muscle, change a thought, and you can get dopamine and serotonin and endorphins from exercising the same way you can get off drugs. Cook so them that up. Is, cook them actually, up. Make it change happen. your brain chemistry through yeah. exercising. And then the other thing is just you are who you hang around. So we kind of touched on it, but if you're in a toxic relationship romantically, or if you have a toxic best friend and they're always complaining and criticizing and bringing you down. Life is a marathon. And if you have someone that's, you know, throwing bananas on you and telling you look fat in your running shorts and telling you you're never going to finish the marathon, it's going to be impossible to win. So just to be really uh, selective with who you spend your time with. Isn't that so profound? I mean, when you think about it, I mean, just those, 
couple of simple things. If a person just said, okay, I'm going to exercise and I'm going to start thinking while I exercise and I'm going to clean up toxic environment, emotionally disruptive, challenging environmental stresses that are just going to suck the life out of me. Yeah. I mean, those are very, very useful, easy, let's get started kinds of things. Here we are in the new year. It's a great time to have a little bit of a, a new year's resolution, if you will with let's take it on down the road. Sounds great. Exactly. Well, listen, I appreciate you taking the time. We've had a nice little conversation here. I uh, hope that this conversation is helpful for you and your mission. It's certainly a reasonable mission. And I think in conclusion, one of the things that happens is you do have two objectives in the title of your book. But when you get down to it, it's really only one. Now, you and I kind of talked about this. Six-figure income is kind of the glitter, but what you're talking about is personal transformation. Yes, it is. So six-figure income. Six-figure income is yeah. like, well, who wouldn't want that? Let me see what's going on. And then, oh, yeah, and here's how you go about it. You change and improve who you are, and you set a system for self-improvement that has these various engagements associated with them, and then you will find the six-figure income. And even if you're making six-figure income or seven figures, there's tips, tools, and techniques in the book. It's not esoteric or so metaphysical that it's woo-woo. You know, it's like tips and tools and practical things that you can start employing today, and it can give you a different result in your health and your happiness in your relationships or in your finances. So it kind of covers the whole spectrum of having just a fulfilling life. What a way to finalize the conversation. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us here in the beginning of a new year. Way to go. Looking forward to hearing more about your progress. Don't hesitate to give me a call if you have something else you want to talk about that say, Parker, here's something else. We had a wrinkle. We had an experience. This would be fun for your audience. Let's get on it. Thank you so much for your time. And you can get the book on Amazon and paperback, Kindle, or audio forms. And it was such an honor and privilege to spend some time with such a thoughtful and intelligent doctor. Wow, what an You're honor. You're very sweet, girl. I'm telling you, we'll have all the links for your book. I didn't really say this. There'll be a, It's going to be at Amazon for sure. But That's we're going to have good. all the links and all your uh, other links for uh, getting coaching with you and getting connected with you on the show notes when they come back over. So. Perfect. We'll get that done. Great. Thank you once again. Thank you. So nice meeting you and connecting. Me too. Happy Thank New you very Year. Much. Happy New Bye. Year to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Corbrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.